Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, joined as always by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? Staying alive, Jerry. Staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? A little disco fever tonight. <laughs> <laughs> We're dancing our way towards the July exam. Exactly. Uh, when the party starts. Yeah, I do believe when this episode comes out, it will actually be uh, the first day of testing. Oh, my goodness. For the July exam to celebrate such a momentous occasion <laughs> and give all our listeners who are sitting for the July exam just a little bit extra help before they go into the testing center. We decided to run back one of our most popular episodes ever. Uh, the Question Palooza. We're going with Question Palooza Volume 2 today, Adam. <laughs> That's right. Question Palooza Volume 2, Disco Fever. Disco Fever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. we, we are going to take a look at six questions today, one from each of the uh, key sections of the CFP curriculum. And we're just going to kind of pick apart the question, kind of talk about how we look at these uh, what are some red flags that you should be on the lookout for and just kind of give you guys a little bit of insight on kind of the thinking that you should have as you tackle these uh, questions in the actual exam. Yeah. So, well, Jerry and I are going to just volley questions back and forth to one another. And our hope is that you step away from the episode learning a thing or two or six or a dozen. Um, let's just hope this is a good experience for all. Um, Jerry, I think you're in the hot seat first here. Yeah, let me have Let's it. Let's get right to it. All right. So we have Allison, who is a CFP professional, who is a registered representative of a broker dealer. Typically, Mateo wants to purchase a specific stock and asks Allison for her opinion before pur purchasing the stock. Mateo recently asked Allison what she thought, in quotes, about Mateo buying a specific stock he intended to purchase. Allison told Mateo that she has looked into the company and that she likes the stock and believes it's undervalued. Mateo then directed Allison to purchase the stock. Does Allison have fiduciary duty? Oh, good question. Yeah, this is a real bread and butter question for the general principles uh, section of the exam. Fiduciary duty is really, really important. It's a key component of the CFP designation. That's why a lot of our clients come to us and seek out CFPs because they know we have that fiduciary duty. So the CFP board wants to make sure all of us are really aware and understanding when that uh, fiduciary duty uh, comes in. And for me, the dividing line is uh, education versus advice. Now, you can educate your clients and you know help them understand something, and that is not uh, providing any financial advice. That is not uh, a fiduciary duty because you are basically just being a real life Google for them, uh, you know, giving them information that is available to anyone uh, who would choose to go and search for it versus financial advice, which uh, to me is very specific and targeted. You know, the kind of trade off I say is I could tell my client, 
hey, everyone should have a 529 uh, because it's a great vehicle for saving for college. That is general education versus I tell my client, hey, you should get the Virginia 529 because it's going to have the most tax advantages for you uh, as an individual, and you should put X amount of dollars into it in order to meet your savings goal by the time your kid turns 18. That is specific targeted advice, and that is where you cross over onto having a fiduciary duty. So going back to Allison and Mateo here, uh, I would say Allison has a fiduciary duty because she is giving specific targeted advice to Mateo. She's saying that she has looked into the, the stock, the company, and that she likes it. And also, especially she believes it's undervalued. So she has done some form of, you know, calculation, some valuation, uh, you know, use one of the various formulas that you get into and in the investments courses. Uh, and she believes that this is a good buy and she's making a direct recommendation to Mateo uh, to buy this stock. So Allison's not, you know, explaining cap M or, you know, explaining the trainer ratio and saying, hey, you know, here's some information. You do the math yourself. That would not be fiduciary advice because there she's just, uh, uh, you know, educating Mateo on what he could do to make his own opinions. Here she's doing, hey, Mateo, I did the legwork for you. I think it's undervalued. Yes, you should go ahead and buy this stock. And because of that, uh, I do believe Allison has a fiduciary duty in this case. Agreed. Great summary there, Jerry. I think uh, just a little add-on too is the second that you said this is for you, like this would be something beneficial for you, client, it then becomes personalized. And that that always helped me as the cue, right? Are we talking about the person? Are we talking generally? Great stuff, though. When, um, when you're working with students on this topic in particular, do you have any favorite resources to direct them to? So, I mean, definitely all of the CFP materials, the CFP roadmap is great. I think it's one of the best uh, documents that the CFP board has put out. Agreed. Um, you know, standards of conduct, uh, you know, all of those those documents are some of the documents I think students should refer to the most. And I think, unfortunately, is also one of the ones they tend to refer to the least, uh, just because it does tend to be a little bit dry reading material. But it's super, super important. And even if you can't really get through the the standard of conducts, you know, reading that every week, like we recommend, at least read the roadmap with its nice, colorful pictures and graphs and figures. Yeah. You know, that one is a little bit easier on the eyes. Definitely read that one at least once a week leading up to the exam. And now that we're, you know, right, uh, you know, you might be a couple days out from your exam, you know, start reading that thing nightly. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And and I think that that's one of your key sources for general principles and especially anything around the code and standards. I remember when the new code and standards rolled out, how CFP board just started to slowly get these different pieces out there to all of the practicing CFPs and candidates. So they were really aware of all the new rules that were going to apply. And they did a fantastic job on all of them. They're very easy to understand. And I, I agree with you. I think that's going to be your students' best references that need to be reviewed regularly. All right, Adam, you ready for uh, for your question? Yeah, yeah, let's go. All right, I'm going to I'm going to give you a tax one. I know tax is your favorite, so we're going to start it off easy for you. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So, Joseph 
is looking forward to having a personal debt forgiven in the current year as it will help him move forward in achieving his financial goals. What type uh, or what types of forgiven debts are excluded from being taxed? Okay. So if I were to process this one, I know it's really short. I know if we were on the exam, we'd have four different options, right? Mm -hmm. We'd be able to strike them out and whittle them down. Uh, What I would do here is I would start with just my my tax flow. I want to get a sense of where I'm at in, in the tax flow. And the way that this would work, if we're talking about things that were excluded, I'm focusing in on that word excluded as a tax exclusion. And from knowing the tax flow and studying some of those infographics in the BIF review, I know that what we do first when we go to the personal income tax flow is that we gather all income derived from any source. So it could even be money for illegal activities. I mean, it's that broad. It's actually in the (laughs) the Internal Revenue Code, which is really funny. There's some Uh, funny uh, court cases about that. Well, that's how they that's how they nailed uh, Al Capone. (laughs) They didn't get him for, uh, you know, smuggling (laughs) booze. They got him for tax evasion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and um, but but any income from any source. Right. And we bring that all together. And uh, the next step in the process is tax exclusions. So after gathering all of that income together, we start this long process in the tax flow of taking things out. One of the tax exclusions is debt forgiveness. But this is one of those places where students are going to have to go a little bit deeper because it's not debt forgiveness broadly. Uh, It's actually just the opposite. In general, forgiven debts are going to be considered income in the year that they were forgiven. So for example, if someone has an income-driven repayment plan on a student loan, what normally would happen, you'd go 20 to 25 years of uninterrupted timely payments toward that loan, and you reach that 20-year mark, and your loan's forgiven. Like, let's celebrate. Let's go to the disco, right? This is awesome. (laughs) What surprises people are that, yeah, it's forgiven. You don't have to make payments on it, but the balance is going to be considered income in that year. Now, there are two exceptions here. So getting back to Joseph's case in this question, there are two exceptions where debt forgiveness is actually excluded. One of them is student loan related. Uh, This has been tested somewhat recently. I've been hearing about it in bits and pieces from cycle to cycle. But with your PSLF loans, basically student loans uh, for people that are working in an area of of need, right? Uh, where the job could be considered a, a public service that's that's helping the greater good in the community. Uh, normally, you'd see this with a medical practitioner who's in an inner city hospital, right? There is a program that was put in place, I believe, during the Obama era for uh, public service loan forgiveness. And basically, you go eight to 10 years of uninterrupted payments while working in one of these roles. And at the end of it, your debt is forgiven, and you don't have to include it as income. So that's instance number one. Instance number two is when you have debt forgiven as a result of being insolvent or basically being declared bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Those are the two. That's that's how it works out. That There's a lot there to unpack, but those are your two debts that are excluded from, from your tax flow. Yeah. And that, that's a big one, um, especially the PSLFs for, you know, school teachers, uh, you know, doctors, things like that. Um, that's a really big one that affects a lot of clients out there. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and we're just starting to see that first round of people that do qualify having those actually taken off the books, which helps them out quite a bit. Yeah. Um, all right, Jerry, ready? You 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 warmed up. You had a, you had a nice good. warm up. I'm good. Right. I'm I'm running hot. <laughs> you are ready to act in the client's best interest. Let's go. I am. All right. <laughs> so new one coming up. This is uh, we're we're walking a farther along in the CFP topics. I have an insurance question queued up for you. Let's go. All right. All right. Let's do it. Okay. A surgeon who owns a five hundred thousand dollar any occupation disability policy injures her finger and is unable to perform specialized techniques in a surgery they specialize in. They are, however, still able to teach at the local medical school where they make $100,000 a year. How much of a payout would the, would the policy provide if the injury took place in February and the policy had a three-month wait period? Yeah, okay. So this is a classic red herring the CFP board trying to throw you off with all sorts of extra information that does not matter. Um, you know, they are trying to lead us down this path because they're telling us, oh, she makes $500,000 a year, but she got injured and now she only makes $100,000 a year. So immediately your mind starts thinking, it's like, okay, there's $400,000 of lost income there. And I guarantee you, if this was multiple choice, $400,000 would have been one of the answers because they're leading you in that. Then they start kind of throwing over, throwing these other uh, variables at us that, oh, the injury took place in February and there's a three month waiting period. So now I'm thinking about doing, uh, you know, uh, a ratio to see, you know, how many months she's actually going to get paid and all the stuff that we think about when we're dealing with disability insurance. And the key that you got to uh, catch is right at the beginning. She has in any OC disability policy in any occupation. And what any occupation means is that so long as you can perform any job, that policy is not going to pay you out. You know, she could, uh, you know, not even be able to teach. Maybe she, but she, the only job she can get is flipping burgers at the local McDonald's. Guess what? It doesn't matter that, you know, she's losing 95% of her income as long as she can work any job, any occupation, her policy will not pay out. So the answer for this surgeon, unfortunately, even though she's losing about $400,000 of income a year, is that she's going to get a big fat zero from the insurance company because she has any OC. A much better policy for this individual, if I was their financial advisor, is I would have recommended that they got an own OC policy and own occupation, uh, because that is the policy that will pay you out if you are unable to work your own specific job. Um, so yeah, this, I really like this question because it really demonstrates just because there's a bunch of information in a question doesn't mean you're necessarily going to use it. Yeah. I like that one a lot. That's one of your <clears throat> read the full question, read the full answers, right? read carefully and slowly and and you got to catch that and i think what's so tricky even about this one is if you're rushing any oc and and own oc <laughs> they're the same amount of letters right well, it's, it's two it's two letters off you know <laughs> yeah same amount and two letters off and it's it 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 can catch you and if if you're you're just all right 
three month wait period, February, uh, five hundred thousand dollars. This is this is, you know, this is where they give you the rope a dope. And, yeah, you, and it's you, actually right there in front of you. You gotta slow down because yeah, like you say, you just want to immediately jump to doing those calculations and doing all that stuff that you know we're used to doing when calculating insurance payouts, and none of it matters in this particular no. question. No, another good one. Another one of those highly testable topics too. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. They love testing the any and Onoc. All right, Adam, you ready uh, for your next one? Yes, sir. I'm I'm ready to go. All right. Let's uh let's take it to Easy Street. We're talking retirement, our golden years. <laughs> so after a recent seminar at the local library. Sophie was concerned that her social security benefits would be entirely taxed. You know, how many times do we see that? You know, you go to the library and there's a poster of like Jim so-and-so is going to be doing a seminar on how you can double your social security payments. (laughs) Uh, Which type of income determines the taxability of social security retirement benefits? All right. So if first thing we want to do is we want to just, uh, Make sure we tell Sophie, hey, Sophie, (laughs) that's not entirely true. They will never be 100% taxed. And what what often happens in situations like this are people get confused about how Social Security works because they'll say, well, I was taxed already on Social Security. It came out of my paycheck. Uh, And they, they miss the idea that Social Security is built as a revenue neutral system where the current workers are paying for the benefits of those that are retired. (laughs) Um, We're talking about people that go into retirement and are claiming their Social Security retirement benefit just based on their work history. Um, So in, in this case, there is a specific formula that's used to figure out, A, if if any part of the Social Security retirement benefit is going to be taxable at all. Uh, The truth is, um, there are three percentages to to memorize on this front, 0, 50%, and 85%. And we've heard word of of 85% kind of floating around there as kind of the maximum amount of that retirement benefit that you would uh, be taxed on potentially. The, the income that we're looking at is not something that's on form 1040. It's something that would be computed kind of off on a worksheet, but it's a, an important concept to know. It's actually an important formula to know. It's called provisional income. And what provisional income is, it is the sum of half of the social security benefit amount plus the adjusted gross income of that person plus tax exempt income. So you have a potential double whammy here. Um, you know, the, the word on the street is that you buy muni bonds because they're, it's not going to be taxed, right? It's not taxed at the federal level, at least. This is one of those uncomfortable surprises you get farther down the road is that that amount is brought into this formula and it could potentially trip the wire so that you're paying uh, tax dollars on your social security benefit. So again, uh, provisional income is the formula, <clears throat> half the social security benefit plus adjusted gross income plus any tax exempt income. We take the sum and then you compare it to these filing status driven tables. 
Uh, that's another thing that we encourage students to memorize. We won't run through them here because it gets a little hazy listing out the, the different numbers, but there are different breakpoints for when you go from 0% of your social security benefit being included as something that's taxable up to 50%. It varies between uh, married filing jointly, single uh, married filing separately. And then there's another break point where you go all the way up to 85% being included. And the other uncomfortable truth about all this is that those break points between those percentages do not and have not historically adjusted for inflation, which means that they are locked into place. And as social security benefits get cost of living adjustments and everything kind of goes along with where inflation's going, those breakpoints have remained the same. So essentially what's happening is more overall social security income on the retirement side is getting taxed over time. But provisional income for this question, we go back to Sophie, we say, hey, let's just calculate this out. It's a pretty straightforward calculation. You file under this filing status. And hopefully it's a situation where you can say, hey, only, only this amount is going to be exposed or you're in the clear. No worries. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's going to come up a lot. You know, it's kind of a, a universal trait for uh, U.S. clients. You know, they're, if they were working, they're most likely going to be receiving social security payments. You know, obviously there are some exceptions to that, but the vast majority of our clients are going to have to deal with social security at one point or another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jerry, you ready for your final question? I am. I am. What's it going to be? <laughs> you know, um, I'm going to put my learning cap on because <laughs> this question strikes fear into my heart. This is one of those topics oh, okay. that I could, I just could not connect in my brain. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that, that you provide some clarity here for both me and I'm, I'm sure a bunch of listeners out there, but we are looking at pulp industries. Okay. They are a paper manufacturer. They produce, they purchase lumber from tree farmers. If pulp industries is concerned with the possibility of rising lumber prices, what type of hedge should they enter and why? Ick. Help me out, Jerry. Yeah, hedging, hedging, hedging. Yeah, it definitely strikes fear in the hearts of a lot of our students. And <laughs> I guess maybe I'm just a masochist. I always liked hedging. <laughs> um, you know, same thing when I took the Series 7. I loved options. <laughs> options was my favorite part of the Series 7. And, you know, that's the one that people dread the most. So, I don't know, maybe I, I just, I work different. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, hedging's not, not as difficult as people make it out to be. I think it's just, it is hard to wrap your head around it because there's a lot of double negatives and things like that and kind of figuring out what's going on. So my best advice for people when they get into a hedging type question is put yourself in the perspective of the uh, you know person in the question. So in this case, in the perspective of pulp industries or you know, put yourself in the shoes of like the, the factory manager or something like that. And it's important to remember that hedging is taking the opposite position of what you currently have to protect yourself if something goes wrong. You know, you're kind of playing both sides of the fence. That way you always come out on top. So I'm keeping in mind, I want to take the opposite side of what I currently have. Now I need to figure out, well, what am I currently, you know, what is my current position? So I'm 
putting myself in the factory manager's shoes. And I'm like, hey, Frank, run the machines, start making that paper. And Frank shouts back to me. It's like, sorry, boss, I can't do it. We're short on our lumber. We don't have enough materials to build the paper. We're running short. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm running short. I should have taken a long hedge on this uh, uh, you know, basically wood on these trees, this lumber, <laughs> because I don't want to be short in the future. So if I am short of a product, if I am a manufacturer, whether I'm making orange juice, that means I would be short oranges. I need to make sure I have enough inflow going into my supply chain to make sure that I can keep business running. So if I am short a product, I want to take a long hedge against it. And I want that long hedge. So I want to buy that long hedge. So my answer here, Adam, is I if I am the CEO of Pulp Industries, I'm going to go out and get a long hedge. I'm going to buy a long hedge on lumber so that if lumber prices skyrocket in the future, I am protected and I can exercise that long hedge, get that lumber at that price that we agreed to, and I can keep my factory running. Woo. <laughs> well thank you for that um i like i like that approach of of getting into into the factory and and hearing hearing the machine operator saying we're short i mean that really we're short so then we need a long hedge i yeah. mean that that really sums it up so nicely jerry nice nice work there Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, don't let hedging uh, give you a, a, you know, a frown, you know, turn it upside down. Just remember you're doing the opposite. <laughs> turn that frown upside down, you know, run that through your head. If you get an option or a uh, hedging question. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, you ready to finish it out. We got the last one on the docket. Let's do it. All right. Nice, short and sweet one for you coming out of the estate section. So how would a U.S. citizen uh, descendant or a decedent, I should say, qualify to use the marital deduction on a transfer to a non-U.S. citizen surviving spouse? So short, but a lot going on to that, that real simple sentence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, well, let's start with with some of the, the key terms there. So marital deduction, right? I'm, I'm honing in on marital deduction there. Because I know that in in most cases, the marital deduction amount is unlimited. So that offers spouses that pass away the opportunity to pass along property to their surviving spouse. Doesn't matter how much. Now, ultimately, what happens is surviving spouse has ownership of that property. Surviving spouse passes away all they have left usually is going to be their estate tax exemption amount to offset any taxes that are due. And what you could basically be doing is prolonging uh, the taxation on, on that property. So marital deduction, that's generally how it works. That is not available to U.S. citizen spouses who want to transfer property to non-U.S. citizen spouses at death. There's different rules and different limits that apply when we have a transfer going from a U.S. citizen to a non-U.S. citizen. And it not only applies at death, it also applies to gifting. So uh, the way it works with couples during their lifetime, they can freely exchange and gift property to one another under 
uh, this marital deduction, right? Uh, where that's just part of the rules. It's exempt from taxation, uh, except when we look at gifts from U.S. citizen to non-U.S. citizen. Uh, there's a there's a higher limit than the annual exclusion amount, but there is a, a pretty hard cap there um, that inflates for inflation over time. So in this case, the the one way that we can have that decedent spouse and and decedent spouse just means the 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 dead spouse, <laughs> the spouse that's passed away, right? Yep. Um, it's actually part of the challenge of estate planning is getting familiar with all these different words to describe things. So decedent is your first to die spouse in this case. What they could have done to qualify for the marital deduction on that transfer to the non-U.S. citizen spouse is to set up a Q dot, right? Um, and what the Q dot trust, what that's going to do is the trust is going to be located on U.S. soil. The spouse that passed away is going to transfer the assets into the trust, and the trust will be managed in the U.S. What's going to happen is that trust is going to distribute out to the surviving spouse over their lifetime and will also pay the taxes at death. Because really, the reason around this needing to be in place is fear that the surviving spouse, if they were to have used the marital deduction, if they did qualify, which they don't, that they could have had this unlimited marital deduction on the transfer and that non-US citizen spouse could have left the country. Yeah. And that's the there's fear, all that that money drain leaving the country. <laughs> yeah. And then and the IRS is one objective out there, right? <laughs> to ensure that taxes are paid in the proper amount and that they're compliant, that goes out the window and they're out they're out some tax revenue. So uh this you could look at it as as just a uh, compromise between the IRS and this person who has a non-US citizen spouse. Uh they say, okay, we'll we'll let you have that marital deduction. However, we need to do it this way. We need certainty that the tax dollars are going to stay in the U.S. and that the non-U.S. citizen spouse won't won't just head out, and that's a Q dot, and that that again reported to have been on the exam in a very similar way uh, in the past. Yeah, and and I'll add to that is the reverse isn't true. The IRS will let as much money come into the country as they as you want. <laughs> yeah. You know, if your non-U.S. spouse is the one who's <laughs> passing away and they're very wealthy, you don't need to set up a Q dot if they're you're just bringing no. it all into the country. The IRS is totally fine with you doing that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, non-U.S. citizen spouses, uh, they have they, they they qualify for that estate tax exemption amount. I mean, that's not something that goes away for them. That's in place for them as well. Uh, but you're right. It's the opposite way. The the fear that those those boatloads of money are going to go overseas somewhere or out, out of the country. Yep. Exactly. Well, awesome, Adam. We uh, made it through the gauntlet. We took care of all <laughs> six uh, major sections. 
Uh, hopefully our listeners uh, were able to get a little bit of, uh, you know, tips and tricks out of that. You know, maybe you will get a question very similar to one of these on your exam. And uh, you guys will think of Adam and me and uh, give us a little, uh, a little thanks in, uh, you know, in the <laughs> testing center. You can just point to the ceiling and say, thanks, Adam and Jerry. <laughs> I think they need to do it like John Travolta style where they yes. need to throw it up like disco style. <laughs> perfect perfect (laughs) well that does it for us this week uh i wish all of you who are sitting for the july exam uh a great boatload of luck even though you're not going to need it uh and i hope uh we get lots of good phone calls and emails uh from our students letting us know uh how they passed and uh how it was you know it wasn't that bad at the end of the day yeah that one of the most exciting parts of our year i'd say is uh having the opportunity to celebrate uh the the many newly minted cfps that'll be out there and uh hear the stories of of the preliminary pass and how they did it and uh yeah an exciting time hopefully hopefully this uh helps people to refresh their memory on some topics maybe this is new uh, but this jerry and i took some time together to pick out these things purposefully because mm-hmm. we do think that they're they're vital concepts to you getting to that pass and uh moving along so definitely well stuff, if, if you are sitting for the exam in november and you want some more uh instructions from adam and i and the rest of the team here at uh boston institute of finance we also are going to be taking signups for the November review course in just a couple of weeks. So uh, we'd love to have you in class with us and we will see you all next week on the next episode of the Biff Bites. See you all. Take care. Have a great one.